About a hundred years ago, a British author by the name of G.K. Chesterton wrote an essay titled, If I Only Had One Sermon to Preach. If I Only Had One Sermon to Preach. This is what he wrote. If I only had one sermon to preach, it would be a sermon against pride. Chesterton wrote, The more I live, the more I'm convinced that all evil began with some attempt at superiority. Superiority. The very skies were cracked across like a mirror because someone sneered in heaven. Chesterton wrote, pride is a poison that is so poisonous, it not only poisons the virtues of life, but it poisons the vices of life. He said, you know, we don't really resent the schoolboy being in love with a different girl every week, and we don't even resent his being in love with all of them in the course of the same week. Our desire to kick him down only comes when he says that they're all in love with him. Gluttony is a great fault, but we don't dislike the glutton. We only dislike the glutton when he becomes the gourmet. That is, we only dislike him when he not only wants the best for himself, but when he thinks he wants the best for everybody else. It's the poison of pride that makes the difference, Chesterton said. He said, he said if I could preach just one sermon on pride, um, I would start by telling people to never enjoy themselves. Don't enjoy yourself. Now, enjoy dances, enjoy theaters, enjoy joy rides, enjoy champagne, oysters, jazz, cocktails, nightclubs, but never enjoy yourself. Never learn to enjoy yourself because human beings are happy so long as they can react and live and respond to something outside of themselves rather than focusing on themselves and being pleased with themselves and enjoying themselves. In short, G.K. Chesterton said, if I only had one sermon to preach, it would be one that would annoy the congregation by bringing to their attention this permanent challenge for the church. If I only had one sermon to preach, Chesterton said, I'd be so confident about it that I would not be asked to preach another. (laughs) He said that, he wrote that a hundred years ago. It's still true today. G.K. Chesterton on pride. Proverbs has a lot to say about pride. 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 I want you to just listen to these verses. I've got them up on the screen. Uh, Read and hear as God's word is proclaimed from the book of Proverbs. Scoffer is the name of the arrogant, haughty man who acts with arrogant pride. Haughty eyes and a proud heart, the lamp of the wicked are sin. You see a man who is wise in his own eyes, there is more hope for a fool than for him. There are those who are clean in their own eyes, but are not washed of their filth. There are those, how lofty are their eyes, how high their eyelids lift. Do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring. Let another praise you and not your own mouth, a stranger, and not your own lips. If you have been foolish, exalting yourself, or if you have been devising evil, put your hand on your mouth. 
Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. It is better to be of a lowly spirit with the poor than to divide the spoil with the proud. Everyone, everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured, he will not go unpunished. When pride comes, then comes disgrace. But with the humble is wisdom. This is God's word. I've struggled with pride. Um, Spiritual mentors have brought to my attention, to me, more than once, Randy, at times you are self-promoting. At times you say things that give us the impression that you um, feel like you're above them or you're a cut above other people. It's a very dark side of you, Randy. I've struggled with pride. I still struggle with pride. Um, I I find it frighteningly easy to slip into an attitude of arrogance and self-centeredness and um, self-focus and comparing myself to other people. There's a part of me that enjoys myself. There's a part of me that's just pleased with myself. You know, I mean, I I went to a really good college preparatory school. I went to a better college preparatory school, probably than you, Holland Hall School. That sounds better than whatever school it was you went to. (laughs) I pastor a better church in a better community with a better congregation. It's not the biggest congregation, but it's respectable. It's better probably than yours. There's a building program going on here, missional, local outreach. We've got good music, solid people. We have solid people. Oh, your church doesn't. I'm sorry, I'll pray for you so that you can get your act together so that maybe you can be like me, which will be good for you. <laughs> so it's really easy for me to talk like that. It really is. Someone might say, oh, stop being so hard on yourself. And the only reason why you might say that, and no one has said that to me yet, by the way. <laughs> but if you might say that, it's only because you don't live with me. You don't know me. <laughs> Pastors struggle with pride. It's, I think it's a vocational minefield. I mean, think about what's happening right here, right now. Right here. Microphone, lights, stage. Yes, they're necessary tools of communication, but my goodness, they can mess with your mind. Paul David Tripp is a pastor to pastors. And, I mean, he knows the world of pastors. He knows the hearts of pastors. He can see beyond the facade of pastors. Listen to these words that he wrote about pride. I'm afraid there's a whole lot of pride in the modern pulpit. There's a whole lot of pride in the seminary classroom. There's a whole lot of pride in the church staff. Pride is one of the reasons for all the relational conflict in the church. Pride is why pastors often seem unapproachable. Pride is why we get angry in meetings or defensive when someone disagrees with us or points out a wrong. Pride makes us too self-assured, too confident, and too quick to assess that we are okay. Pride makes us heroes out of ourselves. Pride makes us take credit for what only sovereign grace produced. Pride makes us pastors think that we don't need the help that other believers need. Pride makes us too slow to listen and too quick to speak. And pride makes us minister with the attitude of a king rather than ministry 
to represent the king. What I want to do this morning is just consider the folly of pride. What is it? How does the Bible describe pride? And what does it do to us? And how how does God feel about it? The folly of pride. And And then, in a happier moment of this message, I want us to talk about the wisdom of humility, what humility is, and how Jesus Christ was the perfect example of one who humbled himself. The folly of pride, the wisdom of humility. Pride, what is it? Let's define it. We should define it. Because there's several meanings in the English language for this word pride. And so... You know, if I say the team was bursting with pride after their victory, was that good or bad? Oh, that's good. Come on. They worked. They pulled it together. It was a hard-earned achievement. Good for you. You should be proud in that way. Good. Keep it up. What about the swimming pool is the pride of our community? Is that good or bad? No, it's good. They paid for it. They use it. It brings people together. The community appreciates this treasure. What about finishing my degree gave me a sense of pride? Is that good or bad? That's good. Really. You studied. You passed. You did well. You're equipped to enter the job market. What What about after driving around lost in the city, the husband at last swallowed his pride and asked for directions? Is that good or bad? Always good. Always Always. So, so Pro- Proverbs doesn't frown on the pride of that sort. All right. Here's what's frowned on. Proverbs 21, 24. Scoffer is the name of the arrogant, haughty man who acts with arrogant pride. Did you, know, did you notice five terms for pride in that small verse? I mean, they're just kind of like piling up on one another, cascading, landing on one another, one after another after another. Proverbs 21, verse 4, haughty eyes and a proud heart. The lamp of the wicked are sin. What does that mean, lamp? What's that stand for? Well, in the Old Testament, in Proverbs, the word lamp is a word picture for your eye. Your eye. So in Proverbs, pride is often illustrated by, you know, the eye, the lofty eye, the high eye. Pride is described in Proverbs by the phrase, wise in his own eyes. Wise in his own eyes. So pride is a lens through which you see life, a lens through which you see yourself and others. Pride uh, in the Hebrew, which the Old Testament comes to us by way of the Hebrew language, pride, pride means high. It means elevated. It's an elevated point of view. So perched from my elevated perspective, my eyes have a view which I claim for myself. And from my elevated perspective, I see you, I see others, I see life, and pride causes me to have an excessively high opinion of myself and my importance and my significance in comparison to others. I'm the dream maker. I'm the dream maker. You're not, I am. In comparison to others. So it's not that I just want to be rich or successful or attractive or educated. Pride drives me to be richer, smarter, prettier, 
more successful than if everybody had the same amount of money and intelligence and attractiveness, there wouldn't be anything to be proud about. So it's in the comparison. It's in the feeling of superiority to others. That's where pride lurks. And that's why C.S. Lewis once said that pride, by its own nature, is competitive. It is essentially competitive. He once said that pride will cause a guy to pursue a girl, not because he likes the girl, but because he knows some other guy wants her, and he just wants to prove that he can beat that guy. Pride. Pride's conceited eyes appear everywhere. It can show up everywhere. Think about where you were born. You can be proud about that. I was born in Tulsa, Oklahoma. There's a huge rivalry between the cities of Tulsa and Oklahoma City. Boo, hiss. There's the Oklahoma State Fair. And then there's the Tulsa State Fair. The Tulsa State Fair. Why? Because our fair's better. We do it better. Tulsa's obviously a better city. It's more sophisticated, more urbane. It's just, and if you don't understand that, I can't explain it. You can be proud about where you were born. Think about education. Think about knowledge. Where you went to school. I went to Bible college. 700 undergraduate students. Our church is larger than the Bible college I attended growing up. So it's a real powerhouse. And yet, can you believe the interconference trash talk that took place between Bible colleges and schools, none of which topped 1,000 in undergraduate enrollment, and yet they bragged like they were Ivy Leagues. What was up with that? Knowledge puffs up. Pride. That was what's up with that. Think about your vocation compared to someone else. Think about your morality or your ethics or your level of righteousness compared to someone else. Think about what you do and don't do with your time compared to someone else. Think about fitness compared to someone else. Think about social media. Feeling so good about yourself because of your likes or your friends. You have an audience. You have more of an audience than others. And think about those who aren't on social media who feel superior because they don't have to worry about such trivial pursuits. You can go anywhere, and pride is there, which means there's nothing unifying about pride, nothing at all. Other vices can unify people. You know, gossip can unify people, right? Racism can unify people, and and sloth can unify people. Greed can unify people. Pride never unifies. Pride divides. Always, always, pride, this looking down on, on high at others. Pride means high, elevated, looking down. There's another word for pride in the book of Proverbs. It's, it's really an interesting word because, you know, part of uh, Hebrew literature is sarcasm. And so pride, well, the word literally means, this definition is supreme majesty. Supreme majesty. Now, it's a word that's often used of God. But sometimes it's used of people, ironically. The supreme majesty of Randy? (laughs) Really? Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. See, because pride is how we act when we try to act like God. Pride is the anti-God state of mind. You remember the TV series Breaking Bad? 
Old Walter White, what made him so bad? Walter White. Well, he has cancer. We find that out in the very first episode. So we know what's coming. You know what's coming. It's just, okay, how, how's that going to get there? We find out he actually had two cancers, didn't he? He had the disease of cancer, and he had the cancer of pride. And in one of the show's most stunning scenes, Walter chillingly explains to his wife, Skylar why he's the man when it comes to cartels and drug trade. She's worried that they're in grave danger. He says, who, who are you talking to right now? Who is it you think you see? Do you, do you know how much I make in a year? I mean, if I told you, you wouldn't believe it. Do you know what would happen if I suddenly decided to stop going into work? A business big enough that could be listed on NASDAQ goes belly up. It disappears. It ceases to exist without me. No, you clearly don't know who you're talking to. So let me clue you in. I am not in danger, Skyler. I am the danger guy opens his door and gets shot and you think that of me no and then the immortal phrase i am the one who knocks wow walter the amazing walter white he's so formidable so invincible how cool would it be to say that sarah Let's not go there. <laughs> and then you realize, oh wait, Walter's dying of cancer. He's a dead man walking. He's a zombie. He thinks he's God, but he's not. Does, does he not know? I mean, what, what's going on there? He's wise in his own eyes. That's what's going on there. Proverbs 26, 12. Do you see a man who is wise in his own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than for him. Now let that sink in because Proverbs is all about the way of wisdom or the way of folly. And uh, the, you know, the worst that you can get is folly. The worst kind of a person you can become is a fool. And yet this verse says, oh no, there's something even worse than that. You know what's worse than a fool? A proud fool. A proud fool. And furthermore, proud people, they don't think there's a problem. They don't, they, don't, they don't see themselves as proud. They don't get it. They can't get it. Proud people just think they're right. Proverbs 30, verses 12 and 13. There are those who are clean in their own eyes, but are not washed of their filth. So they think they're clean. They see themselves as clean. They're not clean, but they can't see it. Why? Proverbs 30, 13. How lofty are their eyes. How high their eyelids lift. My. So, so pride blinds us, blinds us to ourselves, makes us unable to hear others, and, and it keeps us from understanding this one great truth. Church, there is a God, and I'm not Him, and neither are you. Everything we have Every good and perfect gift comes from a heavenly Father, from the Father of lights. You have a degree? Wonderful. Who gave you the intelligence to get that degree? Tell me. 
You were born in the United States of America. Are you telling me that if you were born in the Himalayas somewhere between Nepal and Tibet that you'd have the same opportunities that you have now? Really? Really? You didn't choose your parents. You didn't choose your place of birth. You didn't get to choose your looks. You didn't choose your gifts or talents. So what? 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 Listen to this um, penetrating verse from Isaiah. Isaiah ten fifteen. Can the axe boast greater power than the person who uses it? Is the saw greater than the person who saws? Can a rod strike unless a hand moves it? Can a wooden cane walk by itself? You hear what God is saying? Listen, World Series, right? After one of the games, the bat will never be interviewed. Neither will the ball glove. We're the axe. We're the saw. We're the rod. We're the wooden cane. So what are we proud about? See, centuries ago, centuries ago, St. Augustine wrote these words, God being God offends human pride. If God is running the universe and has first claim on our lives, guess who isn't running the universe and does not get to have things as they please? Two questions. Two questions before we move on to happier moments in this message. Question number one. Do you know how to tell if you're proud? Well, how annoyed do you feel when you see pride in others? There's a signal right there. I mean, you know, how is it that we show no mercy to the pride of others, and yet we fail to see it in ourselves? That's the first question. And the second question is this. How resistant are you to correction or confrontation? If the people closest to you can't confront you without being accused of, of, of you know, being disloyal or being hypercritical, then how will you ever see yourself as you really are? Pride. This, this elevated, perched perspective on others. and Comparing and this, this supreme, majestic view that we have of ourselves that's just not based in reality. No wonder, no wonder we grow small trying to become great. Is there hope? Yes. Yes, there is hope. And it, the hope is in the wisdom of, hu- of humility. The wisdom of humility. Um, uh, humility in Proverbs, shows up as a tactic, and it also shows up as something deeper in the heart to consider about how we see God and how we see ourselves. Let's talk about the tactic first. A tactical approach to pride management comes from Proverbs chapter 30, verse 32. If you have been foolish, exalting yourself, or if you have been devising evil, put your hand on your mouth. Put your hand on your mouth. What does that mean? Well, that's, that's Hebrew for stop talking. Uh, or more tersely, shut up. If you've been foolish, exalting yourself, or if you've been devising evil, shut up. And the more I talk, the more I brag. The more I talk, the more I exaggerate my accomplishments. The more I talk, the more I feed my ego. And the more I talk, the more I annoy others. Proverbs 27, verses 1 and 2. Do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring. Let another praise you, and not your own mouth. 
a stranger and not your own lips. There's the tactic. There's the tactic. You stop talking. Humility. And then there's something deeper for us to consider. Uh, uh, John Dixon has written a wonderful book called Humilitas. He defines humility this way, the willingness to hold power in the service of others. The willingness to hold power in the service of others. Let's break that down for a little bit. First of all, that definition teaches us that humility assumes our dignity. So humility is not self-hatred. Humility is not self-loathing. Humility is not lack of self-esteem. Humility is when someone chooses to put their dignity to the service of others. So whereas pride in Proverbs means high, elevated, humility is just the opposite. It's willing to bow. Well, well, that you are willing to bow and get low means and assumes that you're standing. You're, see, you're, there's the dignity of standing. So, but you're putting that, you're bowing, you're bending, you're serving, you're putting it to the service of others. Humility, which, which leads me to the second feature of humility. It's a choice. Humility is a decision. Humility is a voluntary act. The willingness to put your power to the service of others. Humility is a decision that I freely choose. And then humility is social, it's relational. It has to do with the people in my lives, how I treat others. So it assumes my dignity, it's a decision, and then it has to do with my relationships. And it's based on a divine perspective. See, humility is seeing through the eyes of God. Humility starts with your eyes and what you see and how you see yourself and the world and God. And humility is the spiritual skill of seeing through the eyes of God. You've got to put on your God lenses. Well, how does God see us? And this is so important. Because throughout the book of Proverbs, many chapters begin with this, these two important words, my son. My son. So so Proverbs is a curriculum where a father is patiently pleading with his children how to walk in the ways of wisdom. And so the father is saying, I'm not teaching these things to you so that you will become my son. I'm you already are. So why are you striving? Why are you comparing? Why are you trying to prove yourself? I already love you. I accept you. You're mine. Now rest in my love for you. And now based on what I want uh, from you and for you and what, how I love you, then go. Go and use those gifts and talents. I've given you those things. Put those things to the service of others. That's what I want. In the Gospel of Mark chapter 10, the disciples had been arguing about who's going to be greatest in the kingdom. And Jesus called them on it in Mark chapter 10. He said in verse 42, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, why was Jesus able to say that? 
without flinching, without pause, without hesitation. Here's why. He knew who he was, and he knew who his heavenly Father was. He knew that he was accepted by his heavenly Father. He knew that his identity and his significance were set in his relationship with his heavenly Father. And based on that, he was able to give and serve and spend himself for others. He could put his power and authority and ability and gifts in the service of others. Dallas Willard uh, has taught about this. And, um, well, I'll call it his comparison between the way of humility and the way of pride. The way of humility consists of four parts. Four parts. Um, Acceptance. Sustenance, significance, achievement, acceptance. At Jesus' baptism, when Jesus was baptized, what did God the Father proclaim? God the Father said, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. So so Jesus never doubted about how God saw him. He never wondered how God felt about him. And that acceptance led to sustenance and significance God's love sustained Jesus as Jesus knew. Jesus could say, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And yet he said that no one accused him of being proud. Why? Because he he had his complete sense of self-worth tied into how his Father saw him. You've seen me, you've seen the Father. The Father and I are one. And that led to his achievement. He taught, he healed, he trained, he recruited all in the humility of seeing this world, seeing this life the way his heavenly Father saw. And those are his wishes for us. You are the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth. We don't need, we don't need the world's acceptance for our acceptance because we know how our heavenly Father feels about us. We don't need the attention. In fact, We can serve knowing God. This is why we go on missions trips, because we already know how God feels about us. This is why we can serve in our local community. We already know how God feels about us. We don't do this to get God's love. God already loves us, and that can fuel our ministry and service, both abroad and here at home. Uh, you're going to see a video later on in the service about Operation Christmas Child. It's our chance to be a blessing to others. Why do we do that? Because we do that because God already loves us. That's why. And it's an expression. We can be the hands and feet and face of Christ. We can even do this through anonymous generosity. We can clean toilets and give gifts and serve in love secretly, visible only to the eyes of our Heavenly Father. We can trust God to be in charge of our personal public relations department. The way of humility starts with acceptance, going through sustenance and significance, leading to achievement. The problem with pride is that it takes those same components and reverses them starting with achievement. So I've got to achieve. 
I've got to achieve. I mean, so that I'll feel significant, so that I'll feel noteworthy, so that people will know who I am and what I've done. Well, once you buy into that beast, you've got to keep feeding the beast, don't you? And that's going to be your sustenance so that at last, what? You can be accepted. And if you can't pull that off, you're crushed. And if you do pull it off, you're proud. So either way, it's a dead end. Same four components. Isn't that interesting? Same four components. One will make you humble. The other will make you proud depending on where you start. Depending on where you start. Are you going to start with achievement or are you going to start with acceptance? Dallas Willard wrote, A vision of God secures humility. Seeing God for who he is enables us to see ourselves for what we are. And this makes us bold because we see that it's not up to us to accomplish. It's up to God who is more than able. And we don't have to pretend we can be vulnerable. We don't have to market ourselves. We don't have to proudly push as if the outcome depended upon us. Acceptance, sustenance, significance, achievement. These characteristics. You know what? These characteristics show up every time there's a baptism. Every time there's a baptism, uh, tonight at the Y, we've been talking about Baptism Sunday. And we're going to have uh, 6 o'clock at the Y, uh, followed by a family swim and just a, a, a pizza fellowship. Uh, baptism, baptism is the way of humility where we say, graphically, God has accepted me by grace through faith in Jesus Christ apart from my achievements They're based on his achievements, my significance, my sustenance, anything I can hope to accomplish. We are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God has prepared in advance for us to do. We've talked about it. We've taught about it in our baptism class, and tonight's the night. So, before you leave, if you're ready, you come up here. Don't worry about filling out a card. You can... Take care of that later. You just come and take a towel. Take a towel and come meet us at the Y tonight at 6 as we proclaim the way of humility. You don't do anything in baptism. It's done to you to demonstrate that it's all God. It's all God. Listen, listen. If you wanted to become the most influential person in the world, if you wanted to start a new religion that would eventually grow to claim a third of the population worldwide, what would you do? Where would you be born? Wouldn't it make sense to be born in the palaces of the capital city of an empire, Rome? Jesus didn't. He was born in a small, no-name town. He grew up in a place where people ask, can anything good come from Nazareth? He died a slave's death on a cross. And yet today, on this day right here, right now, worldwide, billions of our brothers and sisters in Christ are gathering and worshiping and singing and praying and studying. And they're not studying Plato. They're studying the Gospels, the truth of Jesus Christ, who humbled himself The king from on high who lowered himself so that by God's power he exalted him to the place that is above the highest place. Christianity begins with on high 
And then it gets as low as you can get. And then it gets back up high again. By the power of God. Humility begins when you begin seeing yourself the way God sees you. We are His workmanship. We're created in Jesus to teach and to build and to create and to sing and to account and to experiment and to practice law and to practice medicine, to parent, to exercise. And if you happen to be known, good, good. You are known to make Him known. That's why you're known. Humble yourself before the Lord and He will lift you up. God God can lift you to higher places than you can ever lift yourself. Church family, be humble or be humbled. 